0: it is. All right, let me begin us with prayer, and then we'll dive right in. Lord Jesus, thank you. Uh, Thank you for the covenant of grace that you have made with your people, even uh, from that moment of the fall, where you are the one who offered the first sacrifice and took the skins of animals to clothe your fallen children. Uh, You offered blood as a type and a picture of your own son, Jesus, the seed of the woman who would come in due time uh, to save his people from their sins. Lord, we thank you that throughout um, your covenantal dealings with men, you have given signs and seals to represent and to signify uh, Christ and all of his benefits. And we pray that you would help us today as we think about baptism, uh, that you would uh, help us to follow the strand of uh, the, the Bible's teaching on this, and to have understanding. For we, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So the, the question of the class is very simply, why do we baptize the children of believers? Uh, and this is a, a question that a, a lot of folks, especially in the South, uh, which is predominantly Baptist, uh, have as they come to a Presbyterian church. And they're, they're wondering... What's going on here? Why, why are they baptizing their babies? Isn't, isn't that kind of Roman Catholic? Um, isn't, that, isn't that what they do? Uh, and so we want to dispel some of that and also help you to understand. And so let's just begin by talking about the biblical basis for baptism itself. And I've got three scriptures here uh, that I'd like to read. The first is the Great Commission. And Jesus came and said to the Apostles, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. That's Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. Uh, And then Acts 2, 38 through 39. And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And then finally from Romans 6. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. That's Romans 6, uh, verses 3 through 5. Uh, so what, what are we talking about when we are talking about baptism? Well, baptism is very simply a sacrament that is a holy ordinance that was instituted by Christ uh, that involves the washing with water in the name of the triune God. That's a very basic definition of baptism that virtually every Christian uh, could agree on, that it's a sacrament involving the washing with water in the name of the triune God. It's a holy action that's given to the church as a sign and seal of Christ and his redemptive work. Now, that language of sign and seal is language that is often used of sacraments, and that language is taken from Romans chapter 4. Now, it's not taken uh, from the sacrament of baptism. It's taken from what sacrament? Anyone remember? Old Covenant sacrament of circumcision. Right. Uh, But it says some interesting things about the way that these signs function. So in Romans 4.11, it says that he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. Uh, And so we want to talk a little bit about that language of a sign and a seal especially when it comes to thinking about baptism. So uh, how does baptism function as a sign? Well, as a sign, it is a picture of what we might call redemptive judgment. So baptism, that word, baptizo, is, is often used in the Bible, not just of the sacrament, but it's used of various pictures of judgment. So I've given you three major examples. Uh, Hebrews eleven seven 7 speaks of the flood in this way. Uh, also, 1 Peter chapter 3 in verses 20 through 21. Maybe let's just read 1 Peter 3, 20 through 21. You don't have to turn there, I'll, I'll turn there. Uh, it says here that um, it's speaking of Noah because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which now corresponds to this, saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That there is a correlation between that flood of judgment and there is with baptism. Now think about the flood of judgment, right? The flood is God's judgment. Those waters, those baptismal waters, are a picture of God's judgment. And what is happening in the waters of judgment? God is washing away the world that then was. Right? Uh, He's he is grieved that he made man. Man has become sinful, and so he's washing away in a flood of judgment, but he spares Noah and his family. Now, he does not spare them by just setting them sort of on Mount Ararat and then having the flood waters only rise to a certain extent. He spares them by having them go through the waters of judgment. To go through the waters of judgment, but they go through it safely in the ark, uh, which most um, Christian scholars have recognized is a type of Christ. That Noah and his family go through those waters of judgment in the ark. And the same waters which lift that boat, right, and save his family are the same waters that destroy the whole world. You can think the same way about the Exodus. What happens in the Red Sea? Um, Well, 1 Corinthians, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 2, Paul says that they were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all passed through the sea. And they, they drank from the same spiritual rock that followed them. The rock was Christ. So now think about the Exodus waters. Do the Exodus waters save God's people? Absolutely. By going through those waters... But then the same waters that save God's people are the same waters that drown the Egyptians, their enemies. So again, you have this picture of redemptive judgment. And then the cross. Uh, Look at Mark chapter 10 and verse 38. So this is an account where... um, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, are, are wanting to sit at Jesus' right hand and his left hand in his kingdom. A very bold request, right? When you enter into your kingdom, can I sit at your right hand and my brother here sit at your left? I wonder which one wanted the right and which one wanted the left. But Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? Here he takes the two symbols that he is going to give to his church as new covenant signs, the cup and baptism, and he says, Can you drink that cup? Can you be baptized with my baptism? Now, what's he talking about? Where is he going to drink that bitter cup of God's wrath? Where is he going to be baptized in the flood of God's judgment? The cross. He's talking about the cross. Uh, very specifically. And uh, they are going to drink that cup and be baptized with that baptism. And so again, the cross, you are meant to understand, is yet another picture of God's redemptive judgment. And all of these are referred to as a baptism. Uh, so a baptism is this, this flooding of judgment. So we tend to think of baptism very positively, right? Right? We rejoice when people are baptized. But we need to remember that the symbol of baptism is actually a symbol of God's wrath and judgment. It is not just a picture of cleansing. It is cleansing through the ordeal. Um, And so just keep that in mind. We're going to come back to that. Now, the sign of baptism, this picture also functions as a seal. So what does a seal do? A seal attests to something. It it authoritatively confirms something. Uh, So this is taken from the the old language that would be used of a king would wear a signet ring, right? And he would have wax and he would press that signet ring into the wax uh, and seal the document. Uh, And that meant that that document came with his authority, right? It came with his signature, as it were. It testifies to the fact that this is authentic uh, because it bears that seal. You can think of the seal that was put on, the Roman seal that was put on the tomb of Jesus. Uh, that was a way of saying that you better not break this seal uh, and come into this, this tomb uh, because the whole judgment of Caesar will be upon you if you do. So what does the Bible say that circumcision was a seal of? It says that circumcision was a seal of the righteousness that is by faith, or the righteousness of faith, that Abraham had even before he was circumcised. So Abraham's not circumcised, but what is he? He's righteous by faith. And so what does God do? God gives him a sign that says, you are righteous by faith. Now, why does Abraham need that sign? Why does God need to give that to him? Well, because you'll remember what happened with Abraham is that Abraham had been given this promise by God that, one, that from his own seed, right, his own son, uh, through that seed, he would become the father of many nations that his descendants would be like the sand of the seashore and like the stars of the heavens. And yet Abraham was old and had no children. And so what did Abraham and Sarah do? Abraham and Sarah contrived a way to try and gain a promised seed through Hagar. By their own efforts, they said, we're going to bring about the promise. And it's not until they attempt on their own efforts to bring about the promise that God says, no, in Isaac your descendants shall be named. And now I'm giving you this sign of circumcision in the foreskin of your flesh so that you will remember, you and all of your descendants, that that promised seed who is going to save is going to be from me and not from you. And I'm giving you this sign as a seal to remind you that your righteousness is not by what you do, but is by faith. That's why he gives him the sign. That's also why circumcision comes to an end when Jesus comes. Because now the promised one, that promised seed, has actually arrived on the scene, right? but it's important to recognize that it is sealing God's promise to Abraham, that God is going to make good on that promise and God is going to do it and not Abraham. Okay? So baptism then is is a sign and a seal. It is God's promise to us in a way that we can actually see and feel. Now, it's important that we recognize that this is not our promise to God. It is God's promise to us. This is one of the major differences between the way that Baptists and Presbyterians, or those who practice uh, uh, baptism upon confessional baptism and covenantal baptism, this is a major difference, right? Uh, We think differently about what baptism is. Baptists think that it is my sign to God, that this is my act of obedience following after God's command. We believe it's God's sign to us. It's as a sign and a seal of the righteousness of faith that is given to disciples. So what is the promise? Well, we can look at those scriptures... Specifically Acts two, three through eight and Romans six three through five, those those teach us at least these three things. That the forgiveness of sins comes through union with Jesus Christ in his death. Right? Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And that comes uh, in union with Jesus Christ, because we were baptized into Christ Jesus and were baptized into his death. It also is a promise of a new and transformed life by the Holy Spirit. That uh, the Holy Spirit, uh, you shall walk in newness of life, right? If you are united to Christ in this way. And then finally, it is a picture of eternal life through union with Jesus in his resurrection. And so all of those things, that's the promise of baptism. That your sins will be forgiven you, that you have eternal life, and that you will walk in newness of life. Your <clears throat> baptism is meant to remind you of those things. God promises uh, to those who are baptized, as they walk in faith, those things are true. But, and here's the big but, but, baptism is not automatic, and it is not Mechanical. Now, this is where we are very much in contrast to the Roman Catholic Church. Though we both baptize babies, we think of that baptism completely differently. Uh, They use this language of ex opere operato. Okay, that's a Latin phrase that means by the working of it, it is worked. Uh, When Roman Catholics baptize children, they actually believe that through baptism itself, it's done, it's effected. And so they believe that the grace of justification comes in baptism. And then you can lose the grace of justification, but it comes to you in baptism. That's what Roman Catholics believe. So we do not believe that, uh, because the Bible doesn't teach that. In fact, the Bible teaches, gives many sad examples of people who've been baptized, but turn away from Christ. Um, and I've, I've listed some there for you, Acts 8, Simon, who believes and is baptized, and then immediately uh, wants to gain this power of the Holy Spirit, and Peter confronts him about it and calls him to repentance. Um, We can think of 1 Corinthians 5. We could even presumably think of Judas. Uh, I think the disciples were probably baptized, right? The disciples were baptizing. Uh, They didn't have that new covenant baptism that Jesus instituted yet, but they were baptized as disciples of Jesus. And yet Judas is going to fall away. So baptism cannot be a mark of regeneration or conversion, right? Do you know the difference between regeneration and conversion? Regeneration is God's supernatural changing of our hearts. Conversion is our response of faith and repentance to that changing of our hearts. That's when we are converted, but it's also a reason why in the Reformed faith, we don't speak of just our conversion date. We speak of always being converted, right? I need to be converted every day in faith and repentance. Re- Martin Luther said repentance is not a one-time thing. It is a whole-of-life orientation. I'm always responding in faith and repentance to the gospel. Yes, there's a time when God miraculously, sovereignly intervened in my life and took away a heart of stone and made it a heart of flesh, right? Right? A heart that was immalleable and would not respond to a heart that was, was fleshly and would respond not fleshly in a bad way so baptism isn't a mark of regeneration it's not a mark of that sign so what is it baptism marks us as disciples of Jesus you go into all the world and you make disciples baptism does not change our hearts it changes our team It brings us into the visible Christian community. And in the church, we call all disciples to believe the gospel promises. So the warning and the invitation of baptism goes out to adults and children every week to receive the forgiveness of sins, new life, eternal life. The waters of baptism that are poured on the outside are meant to be matched by a heart of faith in Jesus Christ on the inside. Okay, so if... Roman Catholics believe that in the working it is worked. How do we believe that baptism becomes effectual unto salvation? The Shorter Catechism gives us, it asks that very question How do the sacraments become effectual means of salvation? The sacraments become effectual means of salvation, not from any virtue in them. Okay, what does that mean? It's not about the sacraments themselves. It's not about whether you use tap water or, or Brita filtered water or your Berkey, right? It's not about the virtue of the water. It's not because you got baptized in the Jordan like Jesus. <clears throat> the water doesn't matter. It's not a virtue in that. Nor, nor is the virtue in him that doth administer them. It's not about me. Right? Think about how important that is. Uh, if, say, you were baptized by somebody who later fell away from the faith, is your baptism still good? Does it still count? Yeah, it does, because the virtue of baptism isn't about the priest or the person who administers it. It's not the virtue in them. It's not in him that does administer them. It's by the blessing of Christ and the working of his spirit in those that by faith receive them. Baptism, this is why our catechism is going to go on and say that your baptism has to be improved by faith. You know that baptism apart from faith is nothing. Just like Paul says to the Jews about their circumcision, uh, God called them to circumcise their hearts. He says your circumcision can become uncircumcision. Same thing is true of Christians. Your baptism can become unbaptism, as it were, if it's not met with faith. We are saved. The instrument by which we are saved is faith. What did God give to Abra- Abraham? What was the sign, a seal of? It was the righteousness of faith. Baptism is a seal for us of the righteousness of faith. It's constantly reminding us that we are not saved by our baptism. We are saved by faith. And that faith is worked in us by the blessing of Christ and the working of the Spirit. So here's the basic principle. The basic principle. We baptize a person as soon as he or she becomes a disciple. Adults become disciples when they confess their faith. Acts 2.28. Repent and believe and be baptized. They receive When they come to faith and profess their faith, the mark of discipleship. When do the children of Christians become disciples? Are you called to disciple your children? What Baptist would say that they're not called to disciple their children? There are a few. I have met a couple consistent Baptists who will not pray with their children, who, who treat their children like pagans, who only call them ever to repentance and faith. It, it blows my mind. But actually, that's consistent. Thankfully, most Baptists I've met, and my family included, I was raised Baptist, Pentecostal, but my parents did not treat me like a pagan. My parents treated me as a disciple of Jesus. They taught me the scriptures. They didn't catechize me, but they, they gave me promise boxes. <laughs> I had a promise to read every day. <laughs> But they instructed me in the gospel, and I'm so thankful for that. They they actually treated me like a covenant child. Um, The children of Christians are disciples from birth, because God commands believing parents to disciple their children. That that I don't think that should be a point of argumentation at all. Throughout from the from the Old Testament to the New Testament, and right on through. And we're going to come to this later. But the Bible refers to the children of believers as holy. Uh, it's talking to spouses, and it, it talks to a spouse that has an unbelieving husband or an unbelieving wife. And he says that, that the, the unbeliever is, that household is sanctified by the believer, otherwise your children would not be holy. They're, how can the Bible say that? Are we to think that children are regenerate, is that what it means? That they're, they're internally holy? No, but there is this external holiness of the covenant community, right? All of Israel is holy, even though members within it were, might not be holy. All of Israel do not belong to Israel by faith. All do not share the faith of Abraham. Uh, and so, the children of believers are called holy, the children of believers are called in the Lord. In Ephesians chapter 6, Paul uses that phrase, in Christ, I don't know how many times in the book of Ephesians. And then you get to Ephesians 6, and he he talks to parents about their children who are in the Lord. What does that mean? Is he saying that they are regenerate and they have faith? No, he's he's just saying they are part of the, the community of discipleship. They are in Christ in that visible, external way. Uh, and so that's the basic principle. I mean, we could stop there. I, I think that in some ways that, that sums it up. We baptize people when they become disciples. Adults become disciples when they profess their faith in Jesus Christ. Children of believers become disciples when they're born. And so we give to both baptism as the mark. Does baptism save them? Huh? What saves them? Faith. Faith. Faith in Jesus Christ. Okay. Now, this is actually what we see. This is the pattern of the New Testament. That the households of adult believers were baptized along with the head of the home. Do you know that every single time we know that a new believer had a household in the New Testament, the household was baptized with them? Yeah. Every single time. There's not an instance where where the head of a household comes to faith in Christ, and their household is not baptized along with them. Now, a Baptist will argue, well, it doesn't say that there were infants in that household. I, I argue it doesn't need to. The principle is of the household, and the household has always been the household. You can see the household includes children. In fact, there's, there's an incident where um, Hannah... Is gonna go up. And it says the whole household went up to worship, except Hannah stayed home with the baby. Uh, and there it sort of proves by what it excludes, right? So households receive baptism. The whole household, when the parents believe, they bring their household into this community of discipleship. When you believe and you come to faith in Christ, one of the commands upon you is that you are going to raise up your children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. You are going to nurture them. You are going to disciple them. That is upon you as Christian parents. Uh, And so because that is the command to you to disciple your children, they should receive the mark of discipleship. So we baptize both adult believers and their households, recognizing that baptism is not automatic for either adults or their children, but rather that it's a mark of discipleship for both. It calls us to believe the gospel promises personally. And that means that there's a unity and a continuity to the way that God works in the Bible. In his covenant kindness, God has chosen to work through the family. Noah's family was saved through the flood. And that flood is, Peter says, a, a type and a picture of your baptism. God ch- charges parents to bring up their children in the Lord, in the Old Testament. Choose you this day, whom you will serve. As for me and my house, except for my babies, <laughs> no, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Joshua can say that, and, and he is going to disciple his children in the Lord, and he calls others to make that choice as well. In the New Testament, the children of believers are addressed as holy and considered in the Lord. We already talked about that. In God's covenant kindness, he gave Abraham this sacramental sign. Abraham received God's promise in Genesis 15. Abraham received God's covenant in Genesis 15 through 17. Then Abraham, when he sinned, he received God's covenant sign to remind him that his circumcision was a seal of the righteousness that comes by faith. He received that even before he was circumcised. That he had even before he was circumcised. And then that covenant sign was given to his kids. Now think about that. What did baptism, what did circumcision say to Abraham? It said, You're saved by faith and not by your works. Now give this sign to your kids. Would Abraham's kids both have faith? God had already told him. Right? Before they were born, um, before they had done anything good or evil, right? The older will serve the younger. So if you if you follow the principle down, Abraham gives this sign to Ishmael, who will not be a believer, and to Isaac, who will be a believer, right? Through Isaac, right? Jacob and Esau are born. Esau will not be a believer. But he receives the sign of circumcision Jacob will be a believer and, and Israel was told explicitly the older will serve the younger Jacob I have loved Esau I have hated still give him the covenant sign the sign that says to him that righteousness comes through faith now the, we have to come back to the judgment principle we have to remember That baptism is not simply positive. There is this negative aspect to it. Right? When we baptize our children, there is an explicit, or excuse me, an implicit warning in it that if you do not respond in faith to the gospel that is preached in your baptism, the waters of judgment will overflow you. So get in the ark. right? Our baptism preaches to our children. And they can appeal to their baptism. Sorry. It's a wonderful thing to think of as a parent. That I can go to my children and I can say, you're a disciple of Jesus. He calls you to faith and repentance. And he promises to save you from the waters of judgment. Believe and find yourself in Christ. That's what baptism preaches. Can I hold off on the question until the end on? Okay. So Old Testament sign of circumcision and New Covenant sign of baptism both point to the same reality. Look at Colossians chapter 2. In Colossians chapter 2, And verses 11 through 12. In him you also were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to an open shame, triumphing over them in him. There's so much we could say about this passage, but the only thing I want to say about it is that you appreciate that both circumcision and baptism are used of the cross. That is where Jesus is cut off. And what you need to understand about circumcision is the language of cutting that is used there, karat in Hebrew. It is used of what would happen to somebody if they didn't make good on the covenant promises. If they didn't come to faith in Christ, they were to be cut off from the covenant community, just the way the foreskin was cut off and thrown away, right? The Bible says that The cross was God cutting Jesus off for his his people, and it was also his baptism. Uh, So both of those together uh, find their unity in the judgment of the cross. Okay, so what does baptism do, and what does it not do? Let's start with what it does not do. It does not generate faith. It's a seal of the righteousness of faith, but it does not give faith does not give the grace of justification like Roman Catholics believe. It does not save our children. So what does it do? It changes their team. It brings our children as disciples into the visible church. It's a naming ceremony. Think about that. It's a naming ceremony. Uh, Baptize them in the name, singular, the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. God places his name upon people in baptism. He says, this one is my disciple. It sets our children apart. It gives them that that holiness. By the way, that's what the word holy means. I'm I'm taking a lot of things for granted. I realize along the way, I'm sorry. Holy means to be set apart. Uh, So it it doesn't necessarily mean that you are internally holy. Right? It means that you are set apart unto holiness, just like all of Israel was set apart from the nations around them, but only some of them had hearts that were changed. So baptism not only makes them disciples, brings them into the visible church, it calls them to faith and repentance. It preaches the gospel to them. The, the, the sacraments always preach the gospel to us. St. Augustine said that they are, they are a visible preaching of God's word. Think about the Lord's Supper. Every week we take the Lord's Supper and it preaches the same gospel that I just preached in the sermon. It just does it now in a way that I can taste and touch and smell. And and it's like God is condescending to my earthly existence to give me a sign that I can know of his love and grace. Baptism is the same way. It calls our children to faith and repentance and it calls parents to faith and faithfulness. We should raise our children as disciples of Jesus, and remind them that they are baptized. Um, Whether you're a Baptist or a Presbyterian, that's a biblical command Mm
1: -hmm.
0: to you, that you would raise up your children as disciples of Jesus and remind them they're baptized. Or not, I guess if you're (laughs) a Baptist, you wouldn't remind them they're baptized, Mm -hmm. but to at least raise them up as disciples of Christ. That you should pray with and for them. I think that includes practicing family worship in your homes, like leading by example, that you should call your, faith, your children to faith and repentance and you can model it for them. Nothing preaches the gospel to your children better than you apologizing for your sins. And you're going to them and humbling yourself and asking for forgiveness because they know that you need it. They, you, you need the same thing that they need. Uh, we should teach our children the faith through Scripture and catechism. Timothy's a great example of that, right? You know, from your childhood, your your mother and your grandmother taught you the Scriptures that can make you wise into salvation. You should bring your children to corporate worship. All right. Now I think maybe is a time where I'll take questions before we just look over the vows together. John, you had a question.
2: Is there a verse in Scripture where uh, Jesus? Says that if you would be my true disciple, you must, uh, come, you must deny yourself and come follow me. And
0: take I, up your cross and follow me.
2: How yeah. does that apply to children
0: believers? Yeah, absolutely. If they, would, if they would be true disciples, then they must take up their cross and follow Jesus. So Judas was a disciple, and yet Jesus, Jesus called him as a disciple and set him apart as a disciple. And yet still called him to take up his cross and follow him and be a true disciple. So there's always this balance in the Bible between what we, what we say with our mouths and what's in our hearts. right? So Jesus says, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Uh, or Romans says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. It's not just about what we say, it's, a, it's about what we believe. And so our children, we're always calling them to take up the cross, to believe, to, to, to be what their baptism says, right, and to disciple them in that way. I think that, that really, in some sense, is the, is the call of discipleship, to take up the
2: cross. So would you distinguish between a, a ch- child, say, who is not a true believer, yet who you're, what you're calling them a the disciple, and then if someone who is a true believer and, and is an authentic disciple, is there a difference between those two?
0: It, there's a difference known to God, but not known to us. So this is a principle that you have throughout the whole Bible that our our confession and catechisms have... Talked about in this way. They have talked about the visible church and the invisible church. But this whole thing is the church, the, this whole thing are the disciples this whole thing, are Israel. And yet, we know that within Israel, not all who are of Israel, the nation, who are of the parentage of Abraham, are Israel, sharing the faith of Abraham. And in fact, Gentiles are. And we know that within the church, there are some that went out from us because they were never of us. Even though they had all the marks, Right? And so we can think about the the warnings and threatenings in Hebrews in this way too. That um, the covenant community of disciples we want the internal I I think I put it where did I say it? That um, said something about the way that it's there's supposed to be a matchup between the external and the internal. I can't find it. But. I think. Do you get the point? Understand the point? Yeah. I think that's the way that we should talk about it. Yeah. I have a lot of questions. So yeah. If you need to come back yeah, to No, it's okay. Probably lots of people have lots of questions.
3: <laughs> um, first, can you speak a little bit to the? the mechanism of baptism that Presbyterian Church goes to, whether it's submersion, sprinkling, pouring,
0: yes. and the, the importance or unimportance of those things? Yes. So, yep, see So what, um, what Wes is speaking about is the, what we would call the mode of baptism. Okay, and the mode of baptism, um, at our church we practice sprinkling or pouring, And some immersion so our, our what our confession says is that the mode of baptism does not ultimately matter what matters is that it's done with water in the name of the triune God all three of these have biblical pictures of them so, for example, sprinkling, you can think of the, the, um, the blood of the covenant, the hyssop branch that's dipped in blood and sprinkled on the people. Some people speculate that that's how the 3,000 were baptized on the day of Pentecost, with hyssop and sprinkled. I don't know. I don't, I'm not persuaded that we have any biblical evidence of that, but there's some people who are persuaded there's historical record of that. Pouring. There's lots of pictures of pouring in the Bible. Uh, immersion, we have um, I think pictures like the flood of judgment is sort of a picture of immersion. Uh, And I think that there is a sort of a symbolic movement in baptism where you go under the waters of baptism. You can think about it as your old life. You die, you're buried with Christ in baptism, and you're raised in resurrection life. Um, That there is that sort of picture in it. But this... Doesn't, this doesn't ultimately matter. I think there should be sufficient water that the, that the baby gets wet and there's a sense that, uh, of, um, that they've undergone this water. So I, I tend to like take a scoop and just like pour it over the head of the baby and it runs down over their face. I was immersed. And Baptists demand immersion. Otherwise, they would say it's an invalid baptism. Uh, the problem with that is the word in Greek, which they argue, uh, which, which they will argue means immersion, does not mean immersion. Um, you can look If you looked up all of these examples of baptizo, for example, it talks about in one of the Gospels, how um, couches are washed. Certainly they don't mean that the couches are immersed. <laughs> like You take it down to the Jordan and you have to plunge it all the way under and then bring it all the way back up. No, it just means that it's washed. The word baptizo really means washing. Um, and it, it certainly can mean immersion. There are contexts where it does mean immersion. Uh, there are other, like Baptists will sometimes argue from the account with Stephen, how they went down into the water and therefore that is an example of an immersion. But when you look for example, at all of the ancient pictures of that, they are in the water, standing in the water, and then they're pouring water over their head. Um, so it, it seems to me that there's not great evidence that immersion must be practiced. So it doesn't matter to me. It's, it's what works, um, and what we've chosen to do is sprinkling and pouring. So you're, if you were, have been immersed, what I'm saying, here's where the rubber meets the road. My baptism is not invalid because I was immersed, and your baptism is not invalid if you were sprinkled or poured upon. Okay. Mode. Another uh, question. So you had talked
3: about how the um, the person administering baptism, yes. their their holiness or whatever word you want to use there, yeah, um, doesn't really matter. Right. Um, in that light, why does the Presbyterian Church reserve the right of sacraments to the ordained,
0: or or do they? Yeah, it it does matter whether they are ordained or not. It doesn't. It does not matter the virtue of the ordained. There's there's a difference. So the to whom was the command to baptism given? The apostles. The apostles. The apostles. The apostles are to go into all the world and make disciples, and the apostles transfer that authority, you can see this throughout the New Testament, transfer that authority through the laying on of hands to other apostles, and then prophets, and then evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Right? So the ministers of the word, this is from Ephesians chapter 4 now, where, where Jesus ascended on high, he, he gives gifts to men, and he gives apostles, prophets, Evangelists, pastors, and teachers. And then he gives them for this reason. I'm going to misquote it if I try to do it from memory. Uh, yes, he gives them for the equipping of the saints. For the work of the ministry and for the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So that is, that is what ministers of the Word do. And so it's ministers of the Word, properly ordained, who should be baptizing. The Great Commission is, not, is given to the whole church, right? But it's given specifically to the ordained officers, and so it's, I would argue that those those things, um, not all of those things are to be done by everybody in the church. You should not be baptizing people in your pool. Um, that would not be a valid baptism.
3: And same would go for communion. You should not be in right.
0: either College students should not be having communion in their dorm with, you know, cookies and soda. The. the the elements, as well as who is administering them, matter. Yeah, that's what I would. That's what I believe the Bible teaches.
3: Yeah. Um, can you expand on as far as your household goes? I know one of the um, one of the vows
0: of the church, or of, of joining the body, is
1: to baptize anyone who enters your household. Mm-hmm.
3: Um, how would that relate? Like it's clear when it comes to children born in your home. or yeah. Option. Um, what about an elderly parent who's not a believer, or an exchange student who's going to live with you for four years while
0: they're here, or, or something along those lines? Yeah. So I, I would say if they're adults, right? If they're adults, then they should profess their faith, uh, because you, you. The, again, the print, the basic principle is when somebody becomes a disciple, then they receive the sign of discipleship. Mm-hmm. So if, if, if they are an elderly adult who is, you know, an atheist, and you would not baptize that person. They would not want to be baptized, of course. You're not gonna Nacho Libre them. You right? <laughs> haven't seen the movie. There's a scene where he's very concerned for his atheistic friend, and. Tries to baptize. Um, so yeah, I was I was just going to go there. That is less easy to understand. I, I generally just use the, the rule of thumb if if they are under your care and guidance and not able to live on their own, right? So I I think you know eighteen is a it's kind of an arbitrary number, but in our society. 18 is, is kind of about right. Um, in older societies, you know, maybe people were married at 16, and they had a, a household of their own at that point. So I, I think, so you brought up adoption. I think this is a great example. If I adopt children, uh, whether they're, you know, like Daria, two and a half, or whether they're 16, I would, I would baptize those children that came into yeah, And then, because, again, bapti- baptism, I'm going to be discipling them. I am their parent. They should receive the mark of discipleship. Yeah. Now, if they're, if they're, like, say they're 16 or 17, and I adopt them, and they are very clearly, I don't want anything to do with this, you know, resistant, then I think there could be reason for pause there.
2: On that same kind of topic... Um, the unbelieving spouse. It yeah. says that they're also holy. Yes. They're made holy. and So you would still maintain they shouldn't be baptized. Right. But what does it mean that they're holy at that point? Yeah.
0: So I, I think it means it just for the sake of the children. That their, their unholiness, right, in terms of their being unbelievers, does not affect the holiness of, of the children in terms of their being set apart in the community. And I think there is at least a sense in which uh, an unholy spouse in, because they're, they're, if they attend church and they're sitting under the preaching of the word, there's some identification with the community, but I would not say we should baptize them. And of course, I would not say just as with children that there's any internal holiness. Yeah. But it's a tricky, it's a tricky passage. Like, what does that mean? And it's not an easy passage for Baptists or for Presbyterians. <laughs> uh, although I think it's a little easier for Presbyterians, probably.
3: It's not going be too literally connecting circumcision baptism, but um, as far as baptism, would you say it's preferred to do it on their eighth day? Or is that
0: just too literally connecting the two? I don't think so. I think there was symbolism involved in the... Eighth day baptism. So I I would just um I think the, the principle is as soon as they are able to be baptized, you should you know, have them baptized. Now, I'm not gonna it, it's 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 hard, right? Mothers have a baby and depending on how complicated that childbirth was, it could be a little while, right? Before they're able to, to bring that child and present them for baptism. So I think we just understand the circumstances and have grace. But if, if, if someone is delaying, like it's been a year, year and a half, and they're still not baptized their child, like I think that's a, that's a problem. And in that vein,
3: um, what, what would you recommend as far as circumcision nowadays? And not even in a religious, but is there, because again, we're told, you know, there are warnings about circumcision that, like, if you become circumcised, then you are under the law. Um, Where then nowadays there's a lot of modern medical benefits to circumcision, and a lot of people, it's more of a cultural thing than a religious thing. Um, Do you have opinions
0: on that? Uh, Okay, so I'm not a doctor. Mm -hmm. Just say that. And I I just want to, like, don't take this the wrong way, but I want to correct one thing you said about if you receive circumcision, you're under the law. Um, If you receive circumcision, what Paul's saying there is if you receive circumcision as a way of being justified, Mm -hmm. you put yourself under the whole law. um, Because the law is a unity, right? So if you're receiving circumcision in that way, I don't think if you've circumcised your kids you've put them under the law in the same way as like a Jewish family believes that they are under Torah. Um, so I just want to make that clear. And you know for us, the <laughs> this if there's no better way to say this than just to say it, right? For us, we, we wanted our boys to look like their dad. So that was our governing principle when it came to the question of circumcision. But beyond that, I would not... Some people think it has health risks and all sorts of things. Some people argue the other side that it has health benefits, and I'm not even going to enter into that frame of discussion. Circumcised, uncircumcised, irrelevant. What matters is faith in Christ. Change the subject a little.
1: Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> anyone, anyone yeah. Um, <coughs> sorry, I'm losing my voice a little bit. But can you speak um, specifically for children to that moment of um, regeneration, and does that moment need to be accompanied by an ordained minister, or like, and and then their conversion? What does that look like in a child versus an adult?
0: Yeah, um, no, it does not need to be accompanied by a minister. It it is a sovereign work of God's Spirit. Um, I think like you have examples of somebody like John the Baptist, who was probably regenerated in the womb, right? The baby is jumping in in his mother's womb at the news of Jesus. Like there's, it doesn't say that for nothing. Um, so sometimes I think the Lord might be pleased to have regeneration accompany baptism. Um, Usually, I think, that regenerative work happens at some point where where the Lord begins to change the heart of a child and makes them feel the weight of their sins and desire to profess their faith. So that work of regeneration is what we call monergistic. It is... God alone working. Um, Conversion is synergistic. It's us responding in faith and repentance. Uh, And so, you know, for for me, conversion looked like um, my parents leading me in a sinner's prayer. And then me publicly professing my faith uh, in the church. And I think that... That's the ideal conversion story, right? Is that you grow up in the church, you've never known a day outside the covenant body and and you've been discipled your whole life. I mean, it's wonderful if you were an axe murderer. No, it's wonderful. It's wonderful if your testimony is that you were an axe murderer and you were, you know, got out of prison, you came to faith in prison. That's a wonderful testimony of God's redemptive grace, right? Paul was a murderer. But I just love the, the story of covenant kids who grow up yes. and they, they can't ever remember when they didn't love Jesus. Mm-hmm. Yes. That's
1: a great story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Can I ask a question on baptism? Yes. Re-baptism. So yes. I, is that like, um, I know people who kind of adhere to the like recommit your life and re-baptist yeah. thing. Um, I would say that in light of this kind of covenantal um, framework it would be unnecessary but is it an error for people like uh, when you talk about this sign to Abraham that he had this like sign that was a reminder for him infants obviously don't remember their baptisms is it an error for an adult to want to do this like publicly or what would the church's position be on a rebaptism? is it just completely unnecessary or is there some sort of room for that for the encouragement of a
0: Put it graphically, it's as unnecessary as a recircumcision. <laughs> right? um, that does not mean, though, that if you've been rebaptized, that you know, we, we all have errors in our theology and we are all growing in our understanding of the scriptures. Rebaptism was a thing that was practiced often. In the circles I grew up in, mm-hmm. Be- and and it was because of that very idea that I'm recommitting my life to Christ, and so I'm yeah. retaking, making this vow and this promise before God, and I want to show the whole world. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's there is there's something there's something a right desire in that, right? Like you want you want to you're zealous for God, and so you you want to. Be able to say to the world, but if baptism is God's sign to you, you can already say that. Mm-hmm. So we would not practice that or promote it or encourage it. It would be an error, but if someone was rebaptized, we'd just be thankful that they were baptized.
1: With some pastors that do feel it's appropriate to do that, is that because the- Like theologically, they think that there could be this falling away and like rejoining the body, like that you're holding your salvation in your choice of God versus his sign to us. Yeah,
0: almost always practice that. Like, Reformed Baptists wouldn't generally practice that sort of thing. That would be in kind of an Arminian system or even a Pelagian system. Yeah.
2: So, you were Zayd. Yeah. then kind of the main passage Baptists like to use. What do you do with it? What do you do with that? Um, the new covenants. Um, they shall all know me. Um, I will be merciful toward their iniquities. Put their law in their minds. That kind of thing.
0: Yeah. So I mean, it's a much bigger answer. Um, the, the new covenant. Okay. Let me just think of where I should begin here. So, when, when he's quoting from Jeremiah here, Jeremiah 31, if you go back in Jeremiah 31 and you look, it's, it's not just about what he says here. There are other promises made um, about the new creation, even, right? And, well, he, you know, here, let, I think this is the way to answer it. Turn to Hebrews 10. Yes. What? I'm sorry. What the, qu- was- the question was about Hebrews 8 and the passage from Jeremiah about the new covenant that God is going to make in those days where mm-hmm. I will put their laws, my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. The reason I want you to turn to to Hebrews 10 is because he quotes that same passage in verse oh. 15. And then I just want to work through this with you. Uh This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. And then he says, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart, The covenant is made with them. i put my laws on their hearts. I've written them on their minds. Okay? Verse 26. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there is no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, and again the Lord will judge his people. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So what I would argue is that you have this same dynamic at play here. In this new covenant, God has written his people on, on his people's on His law on their hearts and on their minds. And yet, there are people who fall away from this covenant. And, and there's no doubt that it's speaking of the new covenant because he said they are trampling underfoot the Son of God and profaning the blood of the covenant by which they are sanctified, set apart, and have outraged the Spirit of grace. So you have the Father, the Son, and the Spirit all present in this covenant, and yet people are falling away. And so I would just, my answer would be that the new covenant, though it is truly a new covenant, is still a covenant. And there are promises in Jeremiah 31, this is where I was alluding earlier, that have not yet been fulfilled of the new heavens and the new earth. Because when that day comes, what's gonna happen? This is going to go away. And God's law will be on all the hearts of his people and on all their minds, and there will no longer be an internal, external distinction. Nobody will be able to fall away anymore after that day. And, and so to just single out um, you know, Hebrews 8 without also reading the same thing in Hebrews 10 and thinking about the covenant in those terms... I think that's how I'd answer it. Um, now, for most Reformed Baptists, a good Reformed Baptist will, will agree that baptism does not equal regeneration. Um, but they believe that the covenant, that we should try to make, here's the way they would say it, we should try to make these two circles correspond as much as possible. Right? Um, so can I get clarity
2: on, on your answer real quick? Yes. So when you're saying, um, they shall all know me and I will be merciful toward their iniquities, are you saying he's referring to the inner circle or he's referring to a future reality beyond? In the, you understand what I'm asking? Yeah.
0: I, I, I just think that Jeremiah is being fulfilled. The fulfillment of Jeremiah is both now and not yet. Got it. And until the not yet comes... Does that language make sense to you? Until that not yet comes, the fullness of Jeremiah 31 is not fulfilled in all of its glorious reality. right? So there are portions of it that are fulfilled, and God is already doing that, um, but it's, it's not altogether complete.
2: Don't babies appear in, in Jeremiah as well? Like The women are carrying babies on their hips? And- I, don't, I don't recall, but that...
0: That would be interesting to consider. Alright, a lot of good questions. Yeah. Hope oh, yes, right. last one. Okay. Last one. You all heard it.
3: <laughs> um in terms of children then getting to take the sacrament of communion. Yes. Um, where where would you draw that line?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. So we reserve communion. For those who have professed their faith in Christ. So we distinguish between communicant members and non-communicant members. And there's a very simple reason. Uh, let me just take you to 1 Corinthians. No, I'm sorry. I was thinking down, sorry. Okay, 1 Corinthians 11. I was thinking of 1 Corinthians 10 because there it talks about the Lord's Supper. The cup of blessing that we bless is not a participation in the blood of Christ, the bread that we break is not participation in the body of Christ. But I was actually thinking of 1 Corinthians 11 where he gives instructions about the Lord's Supper. And in the, in the instructions to the Lord's Supper, he says this um, he, he received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. He gives the words of institution. This is my body, which is for you, the cup of the new covenant, my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Uh, But he also says, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, so as to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. So it seems to us, um, that is, most Presbyterians, that there is a requirement for self-examination and for discernment in the Lord's Supper. So our confession distinguishes between baptism as a sign of entry into the covenant and of the Lord's Supper as a continuing sign of communion. The Lord's Supper is or the baptism only happens once, the Lord's Supper happens repeatedly, as often as you gather together, right? Now, I realize some churches only practice it quarterly or even yearly, heaven forbid. Um, we practice it weekly because of that language, as often as you come together. So, um, that's, that's the, pretty much the reason we distinguish, is because there's a call to self-examination and to discernment of the Lord's body in the Lord's Supper, Think of it this way: um, When you're born, anyone not born in the United States, okay, this will work well. Then. You're all born in the United States. When did you become a citizen of the United States? The day you were born. All you had to be, all you had to do was nothing. It was done for you. You were born in this country, right? And so you have citizenship, natural-born citizenship. Do you also get a driver's license on the day you're born? Why? Well, obviously, you can't even lift your head up yet, right? Let alone your your feet touch the pedals. It would not be safe for anyone else for you to be driving a car. I think that analogy is, is maybe helpful for understanding the difference. Our children are born into the covenant. They are disciples by virtue of being set apart because they belong to Christian parents. But all of, the, all of the privileges of the covenant don't yet belong to them. And all of the privileges of the covenant are not yet safe for them. Um, there's, a, there's a warning about... Eating in an unworthy manner. Uh, now there are some people who practice pato communion, and they argue that just like baptism is given to all children, so all children should receive the other sign. But we distinguish, and for that reason,
2: okay. And wouldn't you also say, Pastor, Joe, because people ask this, there's not a specific age, because obviously children mature at different okay. stages, correct? Yeah. So as soon as
0: you can profess your faith. You know, and, and discern the Lord's body, so that, that means you would you would have some measure of content, and, and it might look different. Like if Daria professes her faith someday, it's going to look entirely different. Daria, my daughter, has Down syndrome, by the way. That's going to look very different than her brother's profession of faith looked like. It's going to be a very very simple profession, which is is enough. We don't need necessarily. Um, Tons of theological precision. That's not what we're looking for in a credible profession of faith. It's that you're trusting in Christ for salvation. Um, So when we talk about faith, we talk about three things. Uh, We talk about notitia, which is knowledge. We talk about essentia, Is assent, and we talk about fiducia, which is trust. Is it enough just to know facts about God in the Bible? No. The demons know. The demons know, and they tremble. Is Is it enough just to assent that those facts are true? Jesus died on the cross, I know that. I believe that's a historical fact. Now, there, there must also be trust. There must be my heart's dependence and reliance upon God. I often, in new members class, I give an illustration of this. I once heard Richard Dawkins on, in an interview with a, a mainline, I don't know if she was Presbyterian or Episcopalian minister lady, And it was a very strange interview because she was like, in some ways, sort of like trying to befriend him or something. And during the interview, he asks her what she believes and she articulates this mushy, disgusting sort of confession of faith. And he says, that's not what Christians believe. (laughs) He had better knowledge than her about what Christians believe. Mm-hmm. And yet he had no trust, no faith in Christ. And so he, he actually could school her in her knowledge, but he believes in the flying spaghetti monster. Mm-hmm. Right? So I don't remember why I started off on that tangent.
2: It was,
0: the question um, was.
2: Children communion. receiving
0: communion, being able to cover the Lord's table. So you were talking about. Yes. And not yeah. So what we are looking to discern is not just all the facts that they know or how well they've been catechized, mm-hmm. but are they trusting in Jesus? All right. I know Wes is done. Are there any <laughs> other You're committed.
1: Those okay. If
0: you if you think of other questions, and I realize this is a topic that can have lots of questions uh, surrounding it, and th- I will tell you that in my own journey. This was the last sort of domino to fall for me. Um, and by God's grace, he gave me a wonderful seminary professor named Bob Strimple. And uh, Dr. Strimple had been a Baptist. He'd been a Baptist seminary professor. And he came pers- became persuaded of covenant theology and he ended up teaching at Westminster. And we both loved baseball and we both had just the worst teams. <laughs> I love the Angels and he loved Detroit. And so we, we built this friendship around that. And he made this, um, we came to this sort of agreement. We were going to throw a baseball together during break. And every time I threw the ball to him, I could throw a question. And he would throw it back with an answer. And I eventually ran out of questions. And, you know, one of, one of the things that I remember him saying, he asked, Joel, what argument could you make against baptism for your children that Abraham could not make about circumcising his children? And that was was a hopeful way of articulating it for me. Um, That was one among many things, and I've, of course, grown in my understanding. And and really, it wasn't until I had a son, Mm -hmm. and I, I had to choose what am I going to do? And I was, I was worshiping in a Presbyterian church. And I felt like I could articulate the Baptist position really well. I felt like I could articulate the Presbyterian position really well. And I had a son. And so I just said, Lord, I'm going to, I'm going to give my son to you. And if this is wrong and I'm an heir, please forgive me. And I presented him for baptism. And I have just ever since grown in my appreciation for the biblical teaching on baptism. And uh, yeah, and the way it preaches to my kids. All right, let me close this in prayer. Lord, we thank you for baptism. We thank you for this sign and seal that pictures the redemptive judgment of the flood of the cross. And Lord, that is a, that is Both a promise and a warning, not only to our children, but also to us, that we do not trust in our baptism or anything, that it is a seal of the righteousness that we have by faith. And so, Lord, we pray that all of our days, um, that sign and seal would preach to us the gospel, and that it would preach it to our children, and that we as parents would disciple them in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Uh, and so I pray that you would help give understanding to, to those who are lacking. And uh, Lord, I pray that you would help us to walk boldly uh, before you in the fear of the Lord. We say it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you for your attention. I very much appreciate it.